You're listening to PZ's Podcast, a guided tour of ancient truths and absurd tales for the modern pilgrim. PZ is space cruising at low altitudes most days through a galaxy of phantom planets of the mind, ever in search of an answer to his wound. Is he a space Parsifal bleeding under his suit but hopeful for journey's end? Buckle up and join him now as he blasts by Mars and Venus, rounding Luna in sure and certain hope of our childhood's end. You can reach PZ while he is on this quest at pzspodcast at gmail.com. Now, here's PZ. podcast is a twofer, and it is number 107 to be followed by 108, and is dedicated to someone I admire very much, Fred Rogers. The podcast concerns a most extraordinary character in the Church of England in the 19th century named John Charles Ryle, and the podcast is a return to an interest I've had for uh, 35-plus years in the evangelical party within the Church of England and as it relates to um, current ministry and current ecclesiastical formations, divisions, and situations and contexts and as how it relates to me. The podcast will be divided into two uh, short uh, casts, I should say, each about 30 minutes. The first will give kind of the basic information on John Charles Ryle, and it's, in my opinion at least, very interesting and uh, uh, sets the stage for um, a tremendous amount of activity that has happened since his death in 1900. And the second cast will be, I guess you might call it PZ's personal reflections on John Charles Ryle and what... I might be able to try to say that I have learned from Bishop Ryle as of today in 2012. Now, um, the other day I had had some connection with somebody, not a listener of the podcast, relevant to Joe Meek, and this very nice fellow proceeded to lecture me about all the different things that uh, he had found out about Joe Meek and uh, trying to tell me things that he thought I uh, didn't know. And, um, you know, you get sort of huffy and arrogant when people lecture you about something that you know, and I had not given away my hand. And uh, I decided just to not say, well, you know, I've lived with Joe Meek for years and years and years, and I think I've listened to almost everything that it is possible to listen to and have been immersed in Joe Meek and have visited Joe Meek's famous studio on Holloway Road in Islington uh, in North London, etc., 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 and that Joe Meek is me, as um, uh, Netanyahu said about um, uh, America, we are you, um, speaking of his own country. And I uh, sort of, you know, that sinful thing in which you sort of want to say, you know, well, let me tell you who you're talking to type of thing. Well, um, I have that same kind of um, self-protective and self-righteous feeling about Bishop Ryle because um, uh, don't you tell me, to quote um, Eric Burden, um, 
I've lived with Bishop Ryle for well over 30 years, and uh, he's been sort of, I am him. Uh, I've, I've connected at such a attached level with John Charles Ryle that it, it almost, um, it, it's almost embarrassing to speak about him now. But I am speaking here without my books, without my cases of books written by J.C. Ryle or books about J.C. Ryle or thoughts about J.C. Ryle. They're all in storage. So what I'm going to be trying to offer you is what feels to me like an entire ministry of reflection on this man's life and contribution, as well as then a second podcast on uh, where I I believe um, actually Bishop Ryle I think I want to say went wrong, or rather, how can we enlarge or add to uh, a complete picture of a Christian warrior or leader, and um, while doing justice to Bishop Ryle's enormous uh, personal commitment and uh, and nobility as a person. So that will be the the second cast. Now, John Charles Ryle uh, was born to a very wealthy English banking family. I think in Macclesfield in Cheshire. This is all off my head, so if you're a, a, a detail person, you'll find things to correct. But it is, as I say, a um, a lifetime of uh, pilgrimage to the um, example of John Charles Ryle, who was born in Macclesfield to a very privileged background and attended uh, Eton and then Christ Church Oxford, and he was a massive man. Uh, and in years past, when people weren't massive, uh, he made a tremendous visual impression. He was six feet tall and uh, was a, 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 a cricketer of the uh, you know, CT stud. He was a cricketer, uh, or like David Shepard, his successor at Liverpool much later, closer to our time. And he was a massive athletic man. And uh, in his youth, his father's fortune was wiped out overnight. They didn't have insurance schemes in those days. And uh, it was very easy for one's fortunes to be wiped out completely by a bad investment. This had been in the days of Daniel Defoe. It's you invested in a ship, and if it never came back, if it was lost at sea, <clears throat> you lost everything. If it came back and had what you had ordered, it could be... Um, it could be the making of a family fortune. Well, in this period, and he was born in 1816, um, his family fortune was wiped out, and he overnight went from nothing uh, to something. And uh, actually, could the opposite be true, (laughs) from something to nothing? And uh, it was at that point that he's searching for um, a a savior. He was a lost person. And you have to understand when people like John Charles Ryle, J.C. Ryle, had what is sometimes called evangelical conversions. They were just like anybody in this world, anyone walking along the street. The um, the bottom fell out of their lives, and they looked for a solution to the sense of complete betrayal by reality that they had experienced. Everything was now up for grabs. And it's an astonishing fact that uh, we, we don't realize that the, these evangelical conversions are not sort of some specific conversion to an ideology. It just happened that these were normal human beings for whom the, the, the bottom dropped out, and they were drowning. And they were looking for the first lifeboat or a life jacket that they could find. And in, uh, uh, in, when the church was really um, doing its job, the Christian church might be an available um, uh, lifeboat 
vote uh, for these uh, poor people, just as today, if the church were really um, the soteriological entity that it is really meant by its founder to be, <coughs> we would have far greater success. It has nothing to do with being converted to a point of view or an attitude. Now, Ryle found Christ as a very young man and was converted solidly out of a point of uh, complete need, and he never really talked about it very much. It's only really referred to specifically um, in his short autobiographical notes, which have been uh, published in a small book and are well available now and are quite famous, uh, if you want to know about the history of that period. And he described this evangelical conversion, and he uh, went almost instantaneously into the ministry in the same way that John Sterling, uh, Thomas Carlyle's famous uh, subject of a wonderful book called The Life of John Sterling, when a terrible thing happened in his life, I mean a really bad thing, as a young man, he sought help in the church. This is where you sought help. And to this day, people on college campuses sometimes, when they're in terrible trouble, might possibly go visit a chaplain or a kind um, fatherly uh, parish priest or avuncular one. Now, he was converted and he went into the ministry and he had a couple of cures and uh, ended up as the uh, rector of the parish of Helmingham in Suffolk. Now, as you know, in the Church of England in those days, and even to a small extent today, believe it or not, you're appointed by one particular person. In those days, the rural parishes and even quite a few of the urban parishes were appointed by the um, patron of the living. And the patron of the living, that is the person who owned the 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 um, value of the lands which uh, the rent from which and the tithes from which supported the uh, ministry of the rector an ancient system and a national system there was a um, an evangelical man a, a definite evangelical man who was at that time the lord of the manor in Helmingham, Suffolk and uh, this uh, man considered it a tremendous um, honor to be able to appoint as the rector of his living for the Church of England in that parish uh, that cure um, John Charles Ryle and um, Helmingham by the way today is a, a famous pilgrimage spot to garden enthusiasts because the garden that has been there many decades is a mature and absolutely beautiful English garden and it's far enough out of the mainstream that it is really um, you can visit it and really feel like you're in old England and yet the most exquisite uh, floral designs and uh, herbaceous borders it's a wonderful place and uh, we went to Helmingham because Mary who's a designer of gardens was interested in going and my interest in Ryle was in the back seat in this case uh, I was not running the show thank God and we visited Helmingham but what is so interesting about Helmingham for someone who's interested in people like Ryle is the parish which is now closed it now uh, it's redundant it's not yet become part of the church's conservation trust but it is a uh, it's closed for regular services. The parish of Helmingham is a living museum, or we might say it is a dead parish. You could see it either way, because when you walk into it, nothing has been changed in the interior of Helmingham Parish Church since, uh, I want to say it's called All Saints, but that may be wrong. Um, Helmingham Parish Church, nothing has been altered since really uh, Ryle left a long time ago, and I'll tell you why he left. So the parish reflects completely the designs of a man whose uh, conversion to biblical and what he would have called evangelical churchmanship and the evangelical party or school of thought in the Church of England. This is after Simeon. And by the way, Ryle was ordained by John Bird Sumner, who was the first evangelical 
Archbishop of Canterbury since John Wesley's revival began. Um, Charles Ryder was the first evangelical bishop, Bishop of Litchfield, but the first evangelical <coughs> archbishop was J.B. Sumner, who was very well born and who married someone very influential uh, and was an evangelical or low church archbishop. Extraordinary story, but we're not talking about John Bird Sumner. We're talking about the man whom he ordained, J.C. Ryle. And Ryle's parish of, Strad- uh, of Helmingham is extraordinary because Ryle uh, kept it, uh, made it a showpiece of what he thought a church should look like. For example, the, the, it's all clear glass. There may be two stained glass windows in the back, which are later or which he inherited. But uh, the parish uh, is covered, the walls of the parish, by stenciled uh, engravings from the Bible. Uh, hundreds, not hundreds, but dozens of them. The place is a, of course, if you're an Anglo-Catholic or a person of high churchmanship, or if you're a, sort of a normal liberal or secular person who, who, doesn't, who looks at it in disbelief, a uh, high churchman or Anglo-Catholic looks at it with horror because there's, there are no statues or... Um, color. It's all um, Gothic lettering. Ye must be born again. Uh, He was born of water and the Spirit. Um, uh, Beware fruits that befit repentance. Um, The world, the flesh, and the devil. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will refresh you on the chancel arch. Everything there, uh, and I may not have that specific, but I spent two hours in it with Mary. The original altar table, not an altar, a table that you can see through with the extraordinary inscription that uh, Ryle himself had placed on it, that this is given to the parish of Helmingdon in uh, hopes by their rector that they will be prepared uh, at the second coming of our Lord. <laughs> you know, I mean, this is a uh, man of decisive, evangelical, um, um, sometimes people call it Anglo-Baptist who don't really know, they don't realize that there has been a very um, living and uh, vital and at certain points majoritarian uh, presence in the Church of England of what is in our country called evangelical Christianity, uh, 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 very much affected by um, by a kind of English temperament, which is by definition much less controversial as a whole and much more open to sort of loose ends and even a kind of a kind of almost laziness is from an American or from a German academic point of view, but actually it's a very wonderful thing. But Ryle himself was definitely hard-edged evangelical, and so his parish, which is has the furniture, has a, the pulpit with inscriptions from him, you know, um, woe be unto me if I preach not the gospel, and all these texts is a is a is is an absolute test tube of unchanged um, evangelical churchmanship of his period. Ryle offended the uh, rector because in a stewardship sermon he made some um, uh, reference to the fact that uh, even the Marquis here, our patron and our the Lord of our manor here, will one day lose all that he has, and he will one day face the judgment of God in the same way that any one of us. Uh, from the lowest laborer on the estate to the um, highest uh, man in Downton Abbey, all of us will face the divine judgment. And he did it in such a way that was probably a little angry. He was probably mad at the Marquis. And by the way, the um, the uh, uh, memorial inscriptions to the family are there, and they are full of Rock of Ages. I mean, they are abs- this is an evangelical family, and they did exist. There were many of them, even among the uh, upper echelons of English society. People of great refinement, but who were also of uh, of definite uh, sort of Florence Nightingale type conviction, and it just was the way it was, and um, as it was in the seventeenth century. Now, 
um, he made this comment that was gratuitous. Clergy do it. Every clergyman who's listening to this, if you've ever been in the ministry, you know that sometimes you get angry at someone important in your congregation, and you may put something against them. You lose control as the preacher or as the rector. Your anger or counter-transference gets the better of you, and you sort of label someone or address someone personally, even if it's slightly veiled, and people don't like it. As a matter of fact, it's a terrible thing to do, and it's a real misuse of the pulpit, and it's, it's an occupation hazard, as Freud says to Jung in a dangerous method of a different kind of occupational hazard. Well, <clears throat> Ryle fell for it and um, uh, immediately fell out with the patron and had to leave. He left uh, under a cloud. And then he transferred to the parish of Stradbrook, uh, which is not very far away, where he became a very good friend, interestingly enough, of the father of the great author of English ghost stories, M.R. James. Uh, M.R. James, Montague Rhodes James's father was a Ryle-type evangelical low churchman and a very lovely uh, clergyman of upper-class uh, educational sort of background and emoluments. And uh, no wonder that M.R. James's dad was a good friend and co-belligerent and a good friend of J.C. Ryle. Now, let me say right off the bat that Ryle, who's now the rector of Stradbrook in this history, uh, was um, a po- very fine writer. He was an extremely good writer in that he knew how to write the English language in such a way that you had absolutely no question as to what was being intended and meant and stated. And he began to develop a reputation as a writer of tracts, tracts for the times. He was very struck that the Anglo-Catholic or ritualist party, whose Catholicizing tendencies Ryle opposed very, very um, heartily and strongly, were making progress through Cardinal Newman's, John Henry Newman's tracts for the times. And um, so um, Ryle began to write a series of essays and uh, little talks and bigger essays and finally books called things like Light for These Times. He saw himself as a slightly later in time. Remember, we're talking a little bit when the Catholic movement in the Church of England was uh, uh, just about 10 years after the Catholic movement had gained steam in the 1840s. And Bishop Ryle, though, is, is just a little bit ahead of it, but we might say contemporary with it, but on the outer edge in the future. He begins to write tracts against the Catholicizing trends. And uh, these are well-written and they're vigorous, and I wish you could see them. They're all available. You can buy everything he ever wrote. He, he sold thousands and thousands and still does. He's still a major successful writer in the year 2012, although he died in 1900. And some of his work was serious and that he decided to make some affirmative writings. So he wrote, uh, one of his most famous was called, um, actually it's called Five English Reformers in the current uh, edition of it, but it was originally called Why Were Our Reformers Burned? And it was a series of vivid biographical sketches of the English reformers like Latimer and Ridley and uh, Hadley and John Rogers, I should say, um, of, and Hadley in Suffolk, uh, and um, Grindle, not Grindle, um, um, Bradford and um, Cranmer, although less, he was less interested in Cranmer because of Cranmer's ambivalent or ambiguous demise. That's another story. But he wrote a series of biographies, which I hardly recommend to you, Five English Reformers. And they're very, very, they always end with an attack on transubstantiation. Um, And by the way, those of you who like this broadcast, um, uh, listen to the song by John Layton called Cupboard Love on the Feast of Corpus Christi. But only if you are in tune with the sentiments of J.C. Ryle. 
And these uh, became very uh, hotly read and contested, but interested by many people. He wrote um, thoughts for preachers. He wrote expository commentaries on uh, the books of the New Testament. His commentary on Mark uh, and his commentary on John are still sold uh, to many people and are considered very good despite their Victorian and hortatory style, declamatory style. He did write simple English, and it was outstanding. And uh, so he wrote many books, and I have them all. And I would recommend if you want to get a real flavor of Ryle that that is also interesting and to some extent probably true and it's quoted indirectly by um, uh, Aldous Huxley in his wonderful book Eyeless in Gaza when the heroine Helen uh, has a memory of Bishop Trelawney of uh, Exeter who or Cornwall who was one of the um, famous seven bishops and the seven bishops under James II I won't go into that but um, read uh, um, uh, Ryle's essay on the seven bishops. I think it's called James the Second and the Seven Bishops. And there you have pure Ryle. So he becomes a very well-known person. I don't want to dwell. I, I could speak for um, way too long on this subject. He then uh, uh, is in Stradbrook, and he's always every uh, every Monday morning they, they can set their clocks by his uh, carriage uh, or his uh, horse uh, getting to the, usually it was a carriage, he was driven there by his man getting to the railway station to go to various meetings. He spoke all over. He was a a, a, a cottage industry of speaking everywhere at Exeter Hall, which was the evangelical watering hole in London. And people like George Eliot write about these places. He was very much against all the new learning and the Bible scholarship, but especially against uh, Anglo-Catholicism or ritualism. And uh, he becomes a national figure. He then uh, has some other jobs, and he becomes a canon of Winchester and finally dean of Salisbury. Now, while dean of Salisbury, and they don't like him in Salisbury because he's so doctrinaire, but I want to add he was a very fair person. He was an intense, committed, advocating Protestant in churchmanship and in the Church of England and in terms of reformational concerns of both theology and uh, polity. But he was also very fair and genial. He had a great laugh. He was very, uh, apparently, delightful person, funny. He was always trying to convert you, but apparently, and very serious, uh, but um, could also have a hearty laugh and was apparently very fair. He was a little bit, I imagine, like Ian Paisley, the famous uh, leader of the Northern Irish Protestants, who is the bane of all Catholics throughout the world to this day. But Ian Paisley, the big man of Northern Ireland, when he was serving in the uh, House of Parliament uh, and as a minister in the government, was considered to be the absolute best possible advocate of his Catholic constituents because he believed that his duty as, an, uh, as a declaratory, declared Protestant unionist was to, be, to go out of his way to show equity, fairness, and justice to any of his Catholic Catholic uh, constituents who were having problems. So you, if you were Roman Catholic and had a legal or other problem of injustice or inequity in your life in Ian Paisley's district, you were a lucky man, because uh, man or woman, because he would always advocate more for you if you were a Catholic, because he was bending over backwards. Well, Ryle also, as a person, was uh, very fair and very funny, and in some ways very delightful. Now, Disraeli, because these things always have a, um, a political, um, you know, the powers that be come into it, like in The Devils by Ken Russell, and the powers that it be politically use things in the church sometimes to, to for their own ends. And when Benjamin Disraeli was retiring or resigning, was had to, was voted out uh, in the Church of England. And wasn't it Gladstone who succeeded him? I mean, in the uh, as Prime Minister of England, I believe it was Gladstone, the Anglo-Catholic or High Churchman, who succeeded Benjamin Disraeli. It, one of his parting shots was to appoint um, John Charles Ryle to be the Bishop of uh, Liverpool in 1880. It was he used his uh, his influence as Prime Minister to get. At 
Pat, the incoming uh, high church uh, uh, man who defeated him, his successor, um, William Gladstone, uh, it was like presidents who used their last 48 hours to do various things they wanted to do and sometimes to spit on the grave or the baptismal font of whatever coming in. And he did this and he appointed the uh, man who was the most unpopular clergyman in the Church of England, publicly speaking, for high church people who were at that point very sensitive and very growing number, moving towards tremendous advocacy themselves and assertion. And he appointed Ryle to be the Bishop of Liverpool. Now, Liverpool was important because it was a thriving port city. We know how famous it is now because of uh, the Beatles and uh, Frankie Goes to Hollywood. But Liverpool at that time was one of the growing edge cities of the British Empire, and it was growing rapidly, and it was becoming a major international cosmopolitan commercial port. And so to appoint, um, and there, there was no Anglican bishop, and to appoint Ryle as Church of England bishop was to give him enormous influence and public profile in one of the cutting edge environments in the entire British Empire. And so uh, it was, if you wanted to offend people who were on the other side of the uh, aisle in the church, you would appoint someone like J.C. Ryle, you couldn't get worse. Weiss, and he did it, and he became the Bishop of Liverpool. Now, when Ryle went to be the Bishop of Liverpool, and I'm trying to bring this to a conclusion, <clears throat> he, every, all the evangelicals and low church people in the church, and there were many, by the way, Liverpool was also a, a hotbed of Protestant churchmanship because there was a huge emigration at that time of Irish Roman Catholics coming in to work in the shipyards in Liverpool. So the the migration of Irish Catholics into this city had made the sort of regular Church of England working people, who were very numerous also, uh, very hotly anti-Irish, anti-Catholic, and therefore pro-Protestant. So the sort of, quote, average regular English working man of Liverpool welcomed Ryle's appointment. He was greeted with great joy, but partly for sinful or wrong reasons, as... um, Lord Beaconsfield had appointed him for long, uh, had faulty reasons. And isn't that interesting? So he comes into it really for wrong reasons, appointed for wrong reasons or for worldly reasons, and um, uh, welcomed for worldly reasons. And he said, ah, I'm in Shangri-La now. And he pushed his evangelical agenda thoroughly, brought every evangelical clergyman he could imagine, supported evangelicals, and made two key errors while he was there, which forever poisoned the well for him in Liverpool, although Liverpool has traditionally been, ever since Ryle, evangelical in churchmanship. David Shepherd, Mary and I knew him, wonderful man, a cricketer, and then the, the, the Chavas brothers before then, who were extremely important evangelical leaders in the Church of England. Christopher Chavas, uh, was that it? Or was it Hugh? Anyway, and then, uh, and then now um, um, James, uh, J- uh, James Jones, uh, whom we love and know well, and uh, it's interesting how it lasts, but he made two errors. He um, he prosecuted, uh, I think his name was McMonachy, but I may have that wrong. He prosecuted a, an Anglo-Catholic vicar for breaking the rubrics. He didn't really want to. He was sort of forced into it, but he, he allowed the more hot-headed elements in his diocese to believe that he would be doing something good by prosecuting an Anglo-Catholic rector who was doing things during the communion and other services that were not formally and legally um, allowed in the Church of England canonical law. They were profound anti-Protestant actions and the rector knew exactly what he was doing and he wanted to be arrested and he was and he spent time in prison. Now when you did that in those days, when you succeeded in imprisoning a man who was really quite saintly and, and a harmless man in every other way except 
extremely assertive in matters of what he did during the Holy Communion and during other services. You earn for yourself obloquy, hatred, and ultimately it always backfires. It's a karma thing. Ryle's prosecution of this man or his allowing of the prosecution to go forward um, was a great moment of defeat for him and his ministry. He also refused to go along with the building of a cathedral. Now, let me say something about that. And I do need to go on just a few more minutes to finish because Ryle is very, very interesting. And this is just something. It's in me. I've lived with this all my life. I'm not telling you something that I read on Wikipedia. In fact, all my books, as I said, are sadly under stacks and stacks of comic books, monster magazines, and and, um, chairs uh, from our old life in uh, Ocoee, Florida. Now, he... um, He also did not believe in the building of a cathedral. Uh, His way of putting it was that he wanted to increase clergy stipends, and the clergy were very poor. Church of England clergy were very poor. He wanted to encourage uh, encourage clergy stipends uh, rather than put money, raise money for a massive new cathedral, which the sort of self-image of the rising commercial and banking and uh, um, uh, mercantile class of uh, the city very much felt was due their honor to build a cathedral, which the city had never had. He resisted it under guise of trying to work for the clergy, but that's not really why he resisted it at all. He didn't believe in cathedrals. He was a Protestant Anglican. He found cathedrals churchy and a kind of reeked of a kind of ecclesiasticism that once you got a clergy uh, uh, and a college of clergy around a cathedral and this big building and a cathedral chapter and all the different kinds of aesthetic and uh, uh, church interests that go into a cathedral, and we all speak from experience here, that you would establish something in the diocese that was really counter to the kind of invisible spiritual religion that he believed Christ had inaugurated when Christ said, um, the time is coming when we shall worship of the Father in spirit and in truth, not on this mountain, as he says to the woman at the well. Now, um, that was his reason for opposing it, and he got his um, sort of the major worldly constituency of people who had a very high sense of their own worth and their own image in the rising city of Liverpool. He got them on against him. They didn't like this. And he was not well received in the last few years of his ministry. And finally, after a stroke, uh, retired and died within a few months in Lowestoft, Suffolk, where I think his family estate or one of his large family homes had been because he'd come back financially, whatever it was, he he was not suffering at the end, although he had lost all his money as a kid. The last thing I'll tell you about him, he was often referred to as the giant of a man with the heart of a child. And he was constantly, he would cry as much as he would laugh, especially as he grew older, needless to say, anything that related actually to Christ the Redeemer, Christ the Consoler, Christ uh, the Compassionate Christ of Thorvaldsen, Christ the um, Lover of Little Children, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will refresh you. He would cry at the evocation of Christ the Redeemer. I'm certain that he had a cold and chilly dad, and that his father's defeat in commerce had something to do with a failed relationship with him, but I can't psychoanalyze him, although the facts are basically known, not the internal facts, but we know this, that he was extremely sentimental, and like many evangelical Christians, he had become a Christian for the right reasons. That is to say, he had actually started out in the time of tremendous need, had been waving, help me, help me, I'm drowning. And the 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 uh, life buoy of the uh, the the life buoy the life raft of the Christian hope of salvation and mercy and compassion had been his and he had embraced it and never looked back. The last thing I'll say is that I believe it was on Christmas Eve, if not that Christmas Day, he and his wife and his all his children. He had a very famous son 
who was a liberal, uh, not famous, but well-known uh, clerical son, H.E. Ryle, and I believe Ryle was the grandfather of another Ryle, but that's another story, fascinating one. But Bishop Ryle, surrounded by his family, and we don't know much about Mrs. Ryle, although like all these men, she was the rock. They just didn't talk about her. Uh, and uh, she was the rock. And um, he went on Christmas Eve to visit his favorite church, which I believe was called All Saints Childwall. I may have that wrong, but I think it's right. Where Richard Hobson, who was a remarkable evangelical low church contestant and very good man, a very, very fine clergyman who'd built up a church, a working class parish, thousands of members, and who had done a great job there. And Ryle and his family show up on Christmas. I think it was a late night service with the bishop's carriage remember that a Lord Bishop of, a, of a, a, a diocese in the Church of England, especially now this great one of Liverpool, was considered a very, uh, had a lot of these things were considered absolutely essential that he have. He wasn't trying to pull rank, but he showed up in the carriage, went to communion, and he said, as Richard Hobson delivered him the bread and wine, unconsecrated, I, I mean, I should say, sorry, cons- bread, not a host, bread, good old bread. And he, um, Ryle actually took Hobson's hands in his with tears profusely flowing down his cheeks and saying, this will be the last. This will be the last time. I will see you in heaven. And Hobson was deeply moved, and it was a very moving moment. This is the language they spoke. This will be the last time. I shall see you in heaven. I mean, it gets me going, uh, you know, it touches me even to speak the words. And he died very soon after that, because men like Bishop Ryle are so completely attached to their religion as they see it and their office as they see it, that there's nothing for them to be after their office is over and uh, they've retired and... um like Randall Davidson, but even more so in the case of the remarkable John Charles Ryle. He died a few months later in Lowestoft. I may pronounce that wrong. Now, uh, I say that because this was a man who was uh, a a granite-like giant of a man with the heart of a child. And now in uh, podcast number two, which will be 108, I'm going to interpret his life just a little bit. Thank you very much. I wish I was a spaceman, the fastest guy alive. I'd fly you around the universe in Fireball XL5. Way out in space together, compass of the sky. My heart would be a fireball. Would be a fireball, a fireball. 